talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Leafs are in the playoffs. Who cares? I'm a Boston fan. At least we hey, accept hey. when we know we can't win. Hey! Here's hey! Hey! Scott Thompson! No, 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 get out of here! Get, 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 get! It's tough when the playoffs start and you've got uh, Toronto fans and Boston fans in the same house. Just fighting over which game's gonna get coverage. It's terrible. Anyway. Uh, we certainly know what happened uh, last night with the Leafs, so that pretty much silenced uh, half the house anyway. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. On the board is Will Weber in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. All right, uh, a lot going on today, uh, as always, it seems. <laughs> Hence the show. Uh, and, and I guess the big uh, thing cl- uh, close to home locally is the Ontario provincial election is uh, officially underway. Oh, no! Uh, you know, it was bad enough when we had, uh, when uh, the Prime Minister called one uh, during a uh, pandemic, a global pandemic. Now we're getting one because we've just plumbed out of time, and June 2nd is the end of it all. So uh, today, uh, the uh, Premier went and, and uh, did all the appropriate things and uh, dissolved the government and officially starting the election campaign, I guess, tomorrow. Although, uh, I think it started several weeks ago, that's for sure. And I'm already tired of it. I'm already... Oh, man. Like, after a global pandemic, are we ready for this? I mean, like I said, and we went through the federal election, uh, uncalled for, ended up in the exact same place. And if we'd known that, we could have, if we'd known that the NDP and the liberals were just going to jump in bed together, we could have saved ourselves 600 and some odd million dollars uh, in, in a federal election that was called uh, before it needed to be. Uh, this one, the uh, obviously time's run out. It's, it's run its course. It's terms run its course. And it's time. June 2nd is the election. And we're all going to the polls. And obviously, we'll try to get all of the major leaders on at one time between or another between now and uh, the election date, which is uh, June 2nd. And again, I'm already exhausted. I'm already tired of listening to political parties on any side of the spectrum. But hey, get ready. Put your helmet on. It's going to be exciting. I hope so. Anyway, all right. Uh, also, big news uh, happening in the United States. And this is bizarre because this information has been leaked out from the Supreme Court. And when you think of the power that the Supreme Court holds uh, in any North American or Western judicial system, uh, this is very bizarre. And it sounds like uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, that this there's an initial draft that has been leaked that they are going to overturn that decision, uh, thus making it uh, taking away the freedom of women's choice to have an abortion in the United States. So uh, a very bizarre turn of events in how uh, this has happened. And and many uh, you know many said it was coming. Others said that there's no way. Uh, is this going to see the light of day? We'll certainly talk about that uh, coming up a little later on. Listen to this. Here's a report on uh, what is happening south of the border regarding Roe versus Wade. If this decision holds, 
is really quite a radical decision. The president says he's concerned that after nearly 50 years, the high court would decide a woman does not have the right to choose an abortion. If the ruling as written stands, he says it would affect not just abortion, but other things based on the presumption of privacy, like same-sex marriage and contraception access. A whole range of rights are in question. What he calls a fundamental shift in American jurisprudence. He's pushing Congress to pass a bill codifying Roe v. Wade. Sagar Magani, Washington. Boy, isn't that bizarre? Uh, did you ever think you'd see that uh, possibly happen? And of course, uh, those on the left in Canada are already pointing fingers at the conservatives saying, see, see. Um, yeah, you can take that for what it's worth. Uh, but that being said, it'll be fascinating to see how this uh, how this moves forward. And if, in fact, we actually get or the United States gets to that point uh, that the president was talking about. Another uh, very uh, interesting uh, turn of events in the last 24 hours, the Pope has spoken up and said that he wants to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president. The Pope wants to meet with Putin. Think about that for just a sec. Uh, here's an interesting report on all of that and where it's going. Francis said he made the offer about three weeks into Russia's invasion. The effort was made via the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin. The Pope told Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera that he is still pushing for the meeting even though he fears that Russian President Vladimir Putin cannot and does not want to have this meeting at this moment. Francis also said he spoke to the head of Russia's Orthodox Church, who tried to justify the war. Francis replied, Brother, we are not clerics of the state. We cannot use language of politics but that of Jesus. For this, we need to find the path of peace to stop the firing of arms. I'm Karen Chamas. Yeah, we can't use politics. We might we have to use religion, the, the word of God, until it's really inconvenient. Uh, fascinating turn of events. Can you imagine? Uh, excuse me, the Pope would like to see you, even if you don't hold any re uh, religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, that has to draw attention, especially to the people of Russia. Can you keep that under wraps? That the Pope wants to speak with your leader. Uh, we'll see how that pans out uh, throughout the course of uh, the next few days. Also, coming up this hour on the show, animals and adoptions. We remember during the pandemic, there was actually a rush on adoptions as people wanted to uh, bring pets into their life to help them get through all of this. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, capitalism and how it has turned uh, society into thinking of socialism. What capital has capitalism has missed as it has grown, and that being sharing its profits with the average worker. We'll talk about that coming up uh, as well. And the kids in the hall, remember them? Uh, they're back in the hall. We'll talk about that as well. You know, we were chatting. Uh, how long has it been? How long have we been in the... I'm sorry, nobody knows. I, you know, I used to have that written down how long we were, what day we were at in this global pandemic, but I think that the ink is actually, like, dried up and... And you can't, it's, it's just disappeared off the page. It's been so long. But we might remember at the beginning of all of this, and, and we were getting locked in, there was this mad rush to buy or, or, or adopt or whatever, uh, an animal, a, a dog, a cat, or anything to help us get through uh, the trials and tribulations of a global pandemic. Well, here we are uh, coming out of this global pandemic. And, you know, I remember reading articles during the pandemic that, you know, your pet's going to have to adjust as you go back to work because they've been used to having you home all the time, perhaps, and then now you are not. So how has this changed 
our view of animals and pets and such. And is it going to change again coming out of this? Let's bring in Heather Ashcroft, Adoptions Coordinator for the Hamilton Burlington SPCA and is with us now. Heather, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. You as well. So I remember talking to the SBCA way back when, and it was like you had nothing. There was there was not there was nothing left, and I can't and I can't remember in the years we've been talking to the Hamilton Burling SBCA that that ever being the case. Um, so how has that changed? Give us a little uh, encapsulated version of what happened through the pandemic and where you are now. I think through the pandemic, as as probably uh, people can guess, there was an increased amount of folks looking to acquire a new pet. People were in a different position. They were home more. Uh, A lot of people were lacking that companionship aspect with being isolated. Uh, And and I did find that adoptions did increase uh, definitely throughout the pandemic. I think what we've seen is, is not necessarily an explosion in adoptions at the beginning of the pandemic and then an increase of, you know, animals wanting to be relinquished at this point, which is, kind of what we were anticipating. I think we've seen something a little bit more level, which is great. And I think that it can speak to the education aspect of the fact that it is kind of common knowledge that we've been discussing this entire time that folks who have acquired a pet throughout the pandemic are going to need to work to prepare them for life when it does return to, you know, quote unquote normal. It's interesting because what you're saying there, Heather, all reminds me of the message that the, the SPCA used to give out around Christmas time every year because sometimes people give pets as Christmas presents, not necessarily the best idea if it is not researched and, and, and the fit isn't there. Um, yes. and, and what often happens after Christmas is the pets come back. Uh, but that's not the case here. It's not the case for us. I think what we've seen specifically because of how we switched to a no-contact kind of one-on-one adoption process it's really allowed us to focus on that fit piece uh, so that we are successfully matching um, people looking to acquire a pet and pets that are looking for homes. So we have not had an increase of uh, people looking to return animals adopted here. But what we have seen is an increase in people looking for support in other ways. So uh, things like dog training, obedience training, our obedience classes are very, very busy. A lot of people uh, have acquired pets throughout the pandemic that are looking to prepare them for uh, being left alone, separation anxiety, even just simple things like socializing because there was that physical distancing and people were keeping away from each other. Um, even just having that normal socializing that a dog has missed over the last couple of years is, is something that needs to be addressed. So we've had a lot of people reaching out in different ways. Um, but what we have seen increase of, which is not surprising, and it's something I've talked about before, is a lot of backyard breeders or non-ethical breeders, people that aren't breeding these dogs for the betterment of the breed, um, had seen a financial opportunity throughout the pandemic because there was so mm. many people looking to acquire pets. And now we're starting to see the negative effects of that. People now that have acquired a pet that has health issues that they didn't they didn't know they couldn't predict um, oh. because of you know n- people that are not breeding for the betterment of the animal and uh, not being selective breeding and and people who are acquiring pets that maybe didn't have that same one on one experience where they were truly prepared for life with this new animal. 
That's a very valid point. Uh, you know, it's interesting you, you said socialization, and we all know what that's like from a personal perspective. <laughs> I've been, you know, uh, locked up for the last uh, while or so. But it's funny because we got a dog just prior to maybe a year before the pandemic. So we kind of lucked out in that way. And, you know, you go through this process of training and socializing, and then, like, nobody's around. Like, people didn't even want you touching the dog's noses at that point. There's lots yeah. of people walking their dogs, but they didn't want to meet. And now it's, like you said, it's the opposite. It's like, now he's a couple of years older, and it's the so it's like you have to re-socialize them. Yes, they need to be reminded of what appropriate interaction looks like because it's something that has been lacking in their life up until this point. Uh, what about the process of adoption? What is that like if somebody wants to call you and inquire and, and go through the process? What, and obviously, you've got a great matching campaign because you've got very few coming back. What is that process mm-hmm. like? Um, because we've seen such success and because we've seen the benefits of how this little switch has worked, we have maintained our no-contact adoption to a certain degree. The initial um, inquiry process, the initial application process, is all done online unless that is a barrier. If you don't have access to the Internet or a website, of course, you can come into the shelter and fill out an application. But ideally, um, moving through the initial steps online expedites the process. Then we can have a conversation, determine, is this a good fit or not? Or if you're just looking for what might be a good fit, uh, I'm always open to having that conversation as well. And then once things come down to uh, looking like uh, it might be a good fit and that you would like to take the animal home, especially with dogs, we're doing meet and greets with the new families to make sure that the fit is good. I did a meet and greet today with Pierre and an HBSPCA alumni, another Cocker Spaniel that was adopted from us two years ago. Um, and, and it's things like this that we need to do in person to be able to make sure that the dogs do well together, that their temperaments are going to mesh well, and that the new adoptive families are fully prepared to navigate that when they bring them home. That's great to hear, and obviously that explains your success rate. Congratulations to you. And of course, if you're out there and you're looking for a pet or considering it, might be a good idea to start at the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. Heather Ashcroft with his adoption coordinator for the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. Heather, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter as we uh, make our way out of this global pandemic about socialism and capitalism and how you're either on one side of the uh, extreme or the other. Interesting, fascinating article in the National Post today by Frank Stronach, who uh, self-made uh, uh, automobile parts magnet uh, and has penned an interesting uh, ed piece, op-ed piece, on this issue and they the headline is capitalists have a role to play in countering the rise of socialism the business community has failed to turn workers into capitalists through profit and equity uh, programs the first line i'm going to read you the first line and the last line of this uh, article and then you'll have to be responsible for the for the middle but this is the just let's be honest capitalism is not working for many people it's one of the reasons why capitalism has become a dirty word in such in many circles uh, the last sentence, bottom line, until business starts doing a better job of sharing the wealth they generate, we will have a problem. We will be, we will keep going down the road of socialism and wealth redistribution, and the day will come when there's going to be no more wealth uh, to spread around. And that is an article in the National Post, uh, courtesy of uh, Frank Stronach. To talk more about all of this, what it means, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Uh, thanks, uh, Scott, for inviting me. Your thoughts on this column? Does he have a point? No. No, he doesn't. 
and, and let me explain that, because I know that sounds provocative. And no, I don't consult to any corporation anywhere in the world. And no, I don't own any shares in any corporation anywhere in the world, with the exception of the Carlton University pension plan that I do not control. They invest in shares, and I don't even know who they invest in. His last sentence that you just read captured the contradictions and his uh, misunderstandings in this op-ed. He said, uh, until they do a better job of sharing the wealth, we're going to keep going down the road of wealth redistribution. So he's saying that they're not doing what we're doing. We're redistributing the wealth, but we're not redistributing the wealth. That's the fundamental contradiction. Let me just go big picture for a moment, because I've been studying these numbers uh, for the last, since I've been teaching, because I'm fascinated by it, because I was very, very fortunate after the wall came down, I ended up teaching in a lot of former communist countries, like numerous, including Russia, including Ukraine many times. And, and I hear this all the time, you know, the, the wealth, the rich get richer, and so forth. The inequality, and this is StatsCan and OECD data, and the OECD gets it from the national statistical agents, agencies of each of the high-income countries, France, Germany, U.S., Canada, etc. Our inequality is lower in the market economies. The wealthy countries of Germany and France and Sweden and Canada, our inequality from the top and the bottom is much, much lower than it is in developing countries like China, like Russia. In other words, we have done, now we've done the, reduced the inequality through what Frank Stronach just said at the very last paragraph, through a massive income redistribution. We do it more than the Americans, but both countries do it. So do the Germans, so do the Brits, so do the French. We redistribute through a so-called progressive income tax system, which means the more you make, the higher the rate of tax you pay. And then we redistribute it through, uh, you know, uh, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, guaranteed income supplement, uh, subsidized housing, so, um, uh, social assistance, and and so we have a one of the uh, the Western countries have the highest incomes in the world. Canada specifically is fifth. This is income per person in the world. So we're very wealthy. I'm not saying we're doing a perfect job, but when you look at all the metrics, StatsCan is showing this, that the poverty rate is the lowest it's ever been in Canadian history. This is not a theory. This is hard data. And for those who don't like Stats Canada or don't trust their data, they get the, the income statistics from this pesky little agency called Canada Revenue Agency. Where does the CRA get the income figures from? Oh, why, that would be us, the 31 million people that file tax returns every year. So when you look at the data, and I'm talking income, I want to be very clear, income, okay, where the inequality is, Canada's right in the, in the middle of the average. The U.S. Is, has higher inequality between top and bottom. But what Frank Stronach was doing was confusing or uh, collapsing the distinction between income and wealth. They're not the same thing. I can have a house that's worth a million or two million dollars, but when I go to the grocery store to Loblaws, I can't say, look, uh, you know, I'll go collect it from my house. Mm. You don't cash in your house every time you buy your groceries. Everybody understands that. It's your income that's critical. And he was talking about how the wealth, the, the wealthiest people, the rich people, have 25% of the wealth, whatever it is. And, and I'm going to say something very provocative, Scott. And I've said this many times in teaching about this over the years. In the socialist economies that Marx developed, and I studied Marx in my Ph.D., he said, look, you're always going to have wealth inequality if you have capitalism and private property. So he said, I have a solution. Let's get rid of private property. No private homes, no private businesses. Everything is owned by the state. 
And we know how that ended. It was called the Soviet Union, and it ended in abject poverty, and it was being overthrown. What I'm going to say to you is the, the wealth inequality is the inevitable byproduct if you have private property. I agree with Karl Marx. How do you like that? But it doesn't trouble me. The fact that Jeff Bezos created, went out and created Amazon and created great wealth for himself and everybody else because he hired hundreds of thousands, several million people, okay, is, is a good thing. And the fact that he is the residual owner because he owns the shares of Amazon or Steve Jobs and his family own the shares of Apple and so on and so forth, we understand the logic. If you start a company, it becomes very successful, you become very wealthy. The question is not whether there is wealth inequality. It's income inequality is critical. We don't want people below the poverty line. That's for sure. But it doesn't bother me that, you know, Jeff Bezos or these other rich people have shares, paper wealth that's worth a lot of money. The critical question is, do we all have enough to eat? Can we all access health care? Can we all go to the dentist? You know, in other words, social services. That's what we should focus on is I guess the point that inequality. let me ask you this point you know we only got a little bit left um, you know you're talking about how this is contradictory redistribution of wealth but he's talking about redistributing the wealth through business and employment as opposed to through government program you know I, I quite frankly I would rather have the government do it and this is really ironic coming from me because I'm a fiscal conservative yeah but but I want to explain that. The role of government is to deal with this. The role of business is not to act as the unemployment insurance agency. Their job is to create whatever they're selling. If you're Apple computer, your job is to make really good computers and cell phones. That's your job. It's not to worry about income inequality. That's, the, that's a public policy problem. And we create and invent government to deal with public policy problems including regulating business, by the way, including imposing taxation on businesses and on individuals. And so it's not the role of the role of business is to go out and make a really good product, a high quality product, whether it's an automobile or whether it's a, you know, an online service or what have you. And, and whenever I hear people saying, well, don't have the government redistribute wealth, have corporations. Well, that's not the job of Starbucks. That's not their job. They're not the Unemployment Insurance Act. And more importantly, the Constitution of Canada does not grant the authority to private companies to deal with public policy problems called unemployment or called inequality or lack of access to good housing or affordable housing. These are classic public policy problems that are best dealt with by government. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the expertise. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The kids in the hall, they're back. Seriously. Uh, with a new with a, a new series coming out to stream on Amazon Prime, let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author Brio TV to find out more. He's with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm glad to be here, Scott. Tell us about this. What do you know? Is this new stuff or old stuff? This is all new. This is uh, new episodes, Amazon Prime Video. They uh, got together with the kids in the hall, and all five of the original cast members, Dave Foley, Scott Thompson, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, and uh, Kevin McDonald, they're all back. And, um, you know, this thing started in 1989, the series they had on CBC. Mm. Uh, so it's 33 years. But uh, 
they had four of them were at Massey Hall a couple of weeks ago. I was down for a press event, and uh, yeah, they seem raring to go. So uh, how do you transform the kids in the hall to adults in the hall? <laughs> They're no longer kids, for sure. They're, these guys are pushing 60. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, a challenge. I think it's a challenge for any comedian or any of us to stay relevant, right? And um, there's a great special coming up later this uh, month. Uh, HBO has, Crave has it here, on George Carlin. And there is the blueprint for staying relevant. You know, this guy started out an Ed Sullivan, very yeah. straight-laced comic and became the hippy-dippy guy who said the seven words you can't say. So he kept changing with the times. And uh, so that's the challenge for the kids in the hall. Uh, they're doing sketches. they got lots of guest stars. Catherine O'Hara is going to be guesting. Uh, oh. Jay Baruchel, a bunch of people. So the, the cast is interesting, but they're going to be putting on wigs and doing some of the characters they, that people loved in the, the past. Uh, this was pretty cutting edge when it was released, uh, in some, in some ways controversial. How do you bridge that gap? How do you, because now, uh, you were talking about George Carlin. It'll be interesting. It would be interesting to know if he was still alive today and still working, how he would adapt to where we are. Um, do you think that's going to be a challenge for these guys? Yeah, I think, you know, that's the shocking thing about Carlin. He died in 2008. And if something happens, if you go on Twitter, half a dozen people have put up something Carlin said about it. Like he's mm. still, he talked about, it's almost like he had a crystal ball. He basically talked about a pandemic and uh, Trump, you know, like it's crazy how ahead of the curve he was. These guys, sketch comedy is different um, and it's challenging. You know, generally that's a young person's game. So, uh, you know, the, if the great example, of course, Monty Python, these guys, will, the remaining surviving Pythons still get together, but, you know, it, it's the seniors tour now, right? And <laughs> so the kids will have the challenge of uh, coming up with sketches similar to what they did, but different. Uh, you know, you, you talk about sketches very much like the old variety shows, although, let's be honest, Saturday Night Live still makes, still manages to do this and has uh, for decades. Uh, yeah. That being said, you're, we're talking about political correctness, politically incorrect. Was there much they did in the old days that would now be deemed politically incorrect? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I mean, uh, canoe heads everywhere would be offended. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all five of them would dress up as women. And, yeah. and you know, it, it just seemed funny that they were in dresses and stuff. Dave Foley always looked way too good in, in a dress and a wig. Uh, and, and, yeah, you know, I... I the thing about comedy is you find the line and cross it, and sure, there'll be stuff that they did, but that was the fascination with them. That's why you watch the kids in the hall, was to see them not be your parents' comedians, to see them push the envelope in uh, new and wacky ways. And, uh, yeah, it's a challenge to uh, do that again, but I think on a platform like Prime Video, they have more latitude, say, than if they were back on a network. Who's going to watch this, do you think? Some of the fans, you know, these guys, there's loyal fans who watched them at the Rivoli back in the 80s, and, mm. you know, they'll, they'll always watch the kids in the hall. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking what about my son's new, What about a new audience? Yeah, you know, I'm saying my son's 29. He'd probably check them out. Like, they, they kind of bridge a few generations. They were always kind of cool. You know, it was Lauren Michaels who was the producer of their original show, and... Uh, so he knows how to stay with the times. But it's a great question, Scott. I'm not sure. You know, there's other people have come and gone. But the idea of bringing back um, the, the, you know, your former greats 
I would watch an SCTV reunion, but not everybody would, you know, so it's a good question. Hmm. Bill Brio with us, TV critic and author. You can find out more at Brio TV. Kids in the Hall are returning. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. A day like today, it's uh, like waking up to a bad, a bad dream because of the fact that he was just taken from us too soon. But at the same time, um, I realized probably that the, the pain that he was in over the last little while, and nobody should have to live with that pain. Larry Robinson, former Canadian and teammate to Guy Lafleur, funeral today for Guy Lafleur, and just an incredible, an incredible representation. Fans, dignitaries, what have you, at this funeral, and of course, uh, over the last little while, through the Bell Center to pay uh, respect while his body was lying in state there. And you know, I, I was having a chat with others, and it's it, this is beyond hockey. This is this just shows you the impact that the Montreal Canadiens uh, and this hockey team has in the province of Quebec and I uh, want to bring in another legend Brian McFarlane hockey historian former host and commentator at Hockey Night in Canada the first Canadian to work in a U.S. hockey telecast and member of the media section of the Hockey Hall of Fame author of over 90 books on hockey his newest a hell of a life in hockey joining us is Brian McFarlane Brian thank you for the time I hope you're well I am doing pretty well for 90 years old I I'm still keeping busy. I've got two or three book deals uh, going, and uh, I'm also painting pictures now and selling a few. So at 90, there's still lots, lots to do in life. Good for you, Brian. That's amazing. I have your autograph. And uh, I was sitting today when I saw that your name was on the show sheet and, and you had uh, graciously accepted our offer to do this interview. I was trying to think of where it was. And, man, it must have been the late 70s. Um, my uncle and I used to have a disc jockey company, and we were playing a hockey dance uh, in Markham for the Markham Minor Hockey League, and I believe you were there as a guest. And my uncle said, that's Brian McFarlane right there. Go get his autograph. And uh, I still have it somewhere, but I couldn't find it fast enough for this broadcast today. Any idea how many of these things you have signed over the years? I, I, I have trouble signing an autograph now. I've got a tremor. <laughs> and so I, I'm doing everything right-handed while I'm a natural lefty. But I, I, I'm chuckling as you told that story. And uh, the years go by so quickly. And uh, I watched this morning the, the wonderful ceremony for Guy Lafleur in Montreal. And uh, there was Larry Robinson. Larry and I wrote a book together once years ago. He gave me a day of his life to record his life story. And uh, hmm. I went to Montreal and we got pretty much done in one day. I was, I was surprised. You know, you watch these images of the funeral and the visitation and such, and it's just astounding the amount of people and the impact not only this team but this man had. How do you explain that? It's beyond hockey. I, I can't explain it. I was thinking as I watched, I wonder how many Leaf stars would ever get such hmm. such a tribute. I mean, Patrick Waugh, I can remember Dick Irvin and I sitting in a little restaurant across from the forum when I did games there, and and he nudged me and he said, see that little kid over there, he looks like a busboy, and I said, yes. He said, his name is Patrick Roach, and, hmm. and he pronounced it thusly, and he said, he could be the next great goaltender for the Montreal Canadiens, and I said, Dick, you're kidding, that little runny guy, oh, he looks like a busboy, you're right. And two years later, there was Patrick Waugh and all the headlines. But how Guy Lafleur? Yes, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead, Brian. 
Well, Guy Lafleur, I wished I'd got to know him better. I interviewed him several times, uh, and and just as Lemaire and some of the others, but you don't really establish a relationship when they're on a telecast for three or four minutes. Uh, I, I got to know Beliveau so well because we worked together on a Scotiabank promotion for about 17 years, and he, to me, is the <clears throat> excuse me the greatest ambassador hockey ever produced. I'm sure everybody's heard that before from a lot of people, but in my estimation, he's just the the greatest. And Lafleur came right along on his coattails. And he didn't take over quite like Beliveau did in the first few years. It took him a while to get established. And his lifestyle at times was in question, but there's no doubt about his talent on the ice. He was a marvel to watch, as everybody talks about him today and this week. Uh, I wrote about him in a book called The Habs many years ago, and I didn't know what I'd written about him, so I just looked it up. Do you, do you have a moment here? Yeah, go I ahead. Find yep. Way through this, I'll only read a paragraph, and uh, I wish I'd written it in bigger print. For many seasons, he was the best on the ice, the most explosive scorer in the game. He had pride and panache, a hunger to excel, and a flair for the spectacular, masking inner demons and anger and torment. His penchant for the late night he loved, uh, the smoking habit he couldn't shake, the fast cars he drove and loved, all caused his friends and employers much concern. The other athletic marvels are often allowed to do so, and when he performed superbly season after season, who would dare suggest he change? He was not a witty shut, a studious Dryden, or a diplomatic Belleville. He was the flower, warts and wondrous talents right up front. He was the hab who lit up the 70s. And I'd forgotten writing that, but it pretty much sums him up. Um, you know, there aren't very many champions in sport. Well, there are a few, but the ones who stand out like Lafleur and Beliveau and the Rocket and and way back to Howie Morenz and Doug Harvey and uh, Jock Plant and those Dryden. I mean, you can list so many Montreal Canadians who excel at the game and excelled as individuals and as team players. And that seemed to be the secret with the Canadians, a team player that had individual excellence. Wow. Uh, Brian McFarland with us, hockey historian, former host and commentator of Hockey Night in Canada, as well as the first Canadian to work in U.S. hockey and a media section of Hockey Hall of Fame. Over 90 books, the latest, A Hell of a Life in Hockey. Brian McFarland sharing his views of Guy Lafleur. Brian, an absolute pleasure to, uh, to touch base with you again. Hopefully we'll chat again and best of luck to you. You look for that autograph. It's around somewhere, I'm sure. Thanks so much for, for having me. People don't uh, don't call me very often these days, but I'm still here, and I'm I'm lucky to be with you today. We'll be sure to call you back, Brian. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter about this uh, 
about the chance that the case of Roe versus Wade would rear its ugly head again as the Supreme Court changed uh, under the uh, under the rule of Donald Trump and became a lot more conservative. Uh, now, a leaked draft from the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a whole other situation onto its own, uh, states that it seems that uh, the Supreme Court is poised to do away with Roe versus Wade. To talk more about all of this, Brian J. Karam is with us, political analyst for CNN. He's a White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Good, thanks so much. I mean, you know, we heard a lot about this, but I think there's many that thought this would never see the light of day. Can you tell us about this leak and, and the information uh, in this leak draft and, and where this is going? Is this a done deal? No, it's not a done deal, but I'll tell you where it's going. If Yesterday, we celebrated uh, World Press Freedom Day, and uh, today is a grand example of why we need uh, a free press. Without uh, leakers, without reporters, we wouldn't know about this stuff until it was a done deal. So it's uh, really important that it was leaked. It's really important that it's reported. And of course, they don't want to, the, the uh, Supreme Court doesn't want to face their faulty logic or the fact that this decision will up in 50, 60 years of established law in the United States. No, what they're upset about is they want to go after the leaker for leaking the truth. And so they want to take away from the issue at hand and make you think that the real issue is somebody telling secrets illegally. This wasn't illegally done. This is a a copy of that could have been obtained in numerous places. It's a draft letter of of a uh, of a ruling that the um, Supreme Court is ready to issue when they get the right case before them. And it's rather shocking in its scope that they're not going to take case law into account or 50 or 60 years worth of uh, established law and procedure into account. It's the fact that the far right wing of the American uh, (laughs) GOP uh, ruled by uh, autocrats and so-called Christians are trying to take over the world and take over. I mean, 70%, you poll 70% of the people in the United States, they don't want to upend Roe v. Wade. But these 30% do, and they're uh, hell-bent on doing it. Uh, what is the Supreme Court's position on this? As you just suggested, they're more upset about the leak than the actual step back in, in progress here, as some would view it. How, uh, how big a deal is this for them, uh, well, the, a, leak, the leak versus the actual information? Well, what it really points out is how uh, the Supreme Court supposedly a disinterested third party neutral party in in the scheme of government is now not it has now been politicized it's now filled with republicans it's now filled with those christians who want to tell you you know it's okay to you have a right to choose for your own body when it comes to a mask for covid but you only have a right to choose for your own body what you want to do otherwise it's rather hypocritical Uh, This allows the states to ban abortion. What is next on this, Brian? Where does this go from here, considering where the U.S. is in its election campaign? Well, Oklahoma has already tried to pass a law that would outlaw all abortion. That will be destined for the Supreme Court. So that's what's going to happen, is individual states are going to pass laws if we don't codify it uh, nationally in Congress, which seems hard to do at this point, but nonetheless, they will try what it's done politically is it's given the Democrats a hell of an issue that 70% of the people in the United States side with them on for the upcoming um, 
midterm elections, which until this came out, if you had told me that the Democrats had a chance of holding on to the Senate or the House, I would have said you were mad. But this issue gives them a that with uh, along with the, the president's infrastructure bill gives the Democrats sound footing to to a campaign for the coming fall elections if they choose to uh, expend any energy in that direction. So uh, the way this sits right now, uh, they've they've made this decision. And then if a state brings an abortion case to them, this is how they're going to rule. They're going to overthrow them. Yeah. And which will leave the door wide open for. And look, let's be honest. It'll be the southern states where abortions will be illegal. The the old south, the Confederacy, a smattering of states uh, in the Midwest. And then, you know, you're going to have your where most of the people live. Uh, it's going to be, it, it will be legal. The problem is for those people growing up in already backwards areas of this country, made backwards by the pol- the politics of the area, it's going to become even more backwards. Is there any chance uh, that the Supreme Court could readjust this, their thinking here, considering, well, or if there is a lot of blowback? Yeah, sure. They haven't made a decision yet. They haven't even, they don't have a case on which to rule. So this is right, right now just speculative. The 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 sad part about it is, and and the shocking part about it is, is they've issued they they've got a draft ruling that they've already you know that they're going to use in a moment's notice if they can, and rather than judging a case on its merits, they've already made up their mind is what this shows, or at least a majority have made up their mind, and that's rather shocking to people who you know value justice. So, yes, they can change their mind. The question is whether or not they will. Uh, what is Biden going to do? You talked about codifying, but you don't think there's a chance of that. It explained what that well, means. Well, he called for that today. He issued two statements today. Uh, the first was if it if this is authentic, we have to you know codify this in Congress. And then secondly, he already took the, the issue and turned it into a, an election issue and said it's this fall. You have to elect people who respect a right to choose. So that's where that's where it's all going. So this really all depends on the next set of midterm elections. I think the midterm elections will have a lot to do with. Uh, I mean, yes, the, if they get a case before the midterm elections, if there is a case taken to the Supreme Court before the midterm elections that has to do with abortion, then this is probably how they'll rule. However, that being a case, that would even anger and uh, energize a voting block more than it, this decision has. So I don't know if we'll see that. What the Supreme Court had hoped to do, it looks like, was to wait until after the midterm elections and lower the boom, preparing uh, you know, its notes and its case to do so now and hoping to catch a case that they could rule on after the midterms. What this has done is short-circuited that put it squarely in the uh, uh, political bullseye for the coming fall elections. And that's where it will be decided will be in the midterm elections. Wow. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter and author of the book, Free the Press, the death of the of American journalism and how to revive it. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Sure. I, I thanks a lot. Anytime. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
just in case you were wondering and just in case you wanted to uh, just drop what you're doing right now and uh, get in the car and run to the gas station. Drivers in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area can expect to see prices rise another four cents a liter on fuel as of tomorrow to reach their highest rate since early March. Uh, the average price in the area, a buck eighty-six. Uh, Dan McTagg, president of a Canadian for Afford- uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy, said fuel pump prices in Toronto and most southern Ontarios would spike and match the record, which was sent uh, set back on March 10th. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for, Inforda- for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Good to be here. So, Dan, uh, you know, it used to be every so often gas prices go up, but now it seems like every single week they go up. Is is that the new norm? Like every every like I mean, and we're seeing astronomical increases. Yeah, gas and diesel, uh, Scott, and it's the uh, it's the reality of years of uh, taking for granted uh, a product which the world wants more, not less of. And so, folks out there that think, oh, well, we can just uh, you know, uh, wish these things away or, you know, take a bus or, you know, <laughs> buy a $125,000 electric vehicle, I think are kidding themselves. Those prices will go up as a result. There isn't a single thing that we have right now, unless we're talking hemp uh, and maybe sand uh, or water, uh, which we uh, which doesn't have a component of hydrocarbons within it. It's for that reason that, uh, you know, uh, our years of second-guessing it, thinking no big deal, especially here in eastern Canada, where we've uh, really much uh, you know, applauded the strangulation of the uh, pipelines that uh, deliver and the production that makes uh, this product get to market. Um, you know, what's happened, of course, in Europe, uh, the uh, supply exceeding, uh, rather demand exceeding supply has now left us uh, in a very precarious position financially uh, as a country where inflation is being driven to a large extent by uh the rise, uh, dramatic rise of uh, both diesel, which is double the price compared to last year, and gasoline, which is about 60% higher than last year. Are you surprised there's so many increases that the frequency of these? Well, I mean, I think it's more than I had anticipated. I, I said that $2 a liter would be hard to achieve in many uh, papers. I think uh, driving.ca, National Post, David Booth did a story a couple times with me on this. I said to get to $2 a liter, a number of things would have to happen, including a war. And uh, that's exactly what's happened. Um, mm. More importantly, it's been this long, you know, this long time coming approach our government has taken. And Canadians apparently in eastern Canada have endorsed the idea of uh, shutting down uh, an industry that is absolutely important at the most critical of times. We can't simply, you know, uh, take the engine out of the car, throw it in the ground and then suddenly throw it back in. We're in a, a energy super cycle. It's an energy crisis. Uh, giving rise to a global security crisis. And we've forgotten what it's like 20, 30, 40 years ago when we didn't have energy security, especially in the United States. I think now we're trying to do our very best to try to put something together very quickly so that, uh, you know, the, uh, the sane part of the world is willing to, uh, is, is willing to, uh, not second guess something that, uh, it can't take for granted. And that's whether you like it or not, oil and gas. 
Uh, you bring up a valid point, and I think many are probably too young to remember any sort of energy crisis that those in our 50s may. Um, will I'm going to play devil's advocate. Dan, none of this matters. Uh, we're building all these EV plants, and everybody's lining up to buy an EV vehicle. Uh, you know, opposition saying that we need rebates. We need to give rebates for people to buy these vehicles, even though the lineup to buy them, like why you would discount a product that everybody now seems to want, seems bizarre. But how has the demand for EVs or even these announcements that we've seen in Windsor this week and then with, with Ford and GM as well, how does that change the discussion? Well, what changed the discussion is the attempt at trying to drive out affordability, uh, and a, a deliberate attempt to try and drive up the price of energy, which in turn is driving the cost up the cost of living such that no one can afford anything short of a, a subsidy. Uh, and subsidies don't you know, grow off trees. It's tax dollars that are being used. Uh, they're being directed from one priority to another. So think here of health care, think here of, uh, of education, think here of infrastructure, think here of employment programs, uh, think here of uh, uh, you know, programs designed uh, to help Canadians, new Canadians integrate. All those monies are being repurposed for the idea that somehow you know, EVs are the way to go. I think the EV versus uh, internal combustion engine thing is a, is a no-brainer for me. Internal combustion engines are less polluting, you know, less less expensive, and uh, don't need a subsidy. But that aside, uh, I, the more critical issue is where does all this lead us? Well, it doesn't lead us to a drop in the emissions. And what it does do is it costs trillions of dollars to create significant disruptions, which are not uh, viable. Look, at the end of the day, renewables uh, and the pursuit of this government and its friends over in Europe, who you once thought this was great, is that alternative energy, alternative to natural gas and oil and uh, short of nuclear, is not scalable, uh, it's not reliable, and it sure as hell is unaffordable. So if people want to live this fantasy world, I can suggest wait till interest rates and inflation really start to bite. That's over the next several months. I think you're going to see fewer and fewer people uh, you know, take this sort of enthusiastic approach that there's no consequence to what they're demanding, because what they're demanding is a retrograde step backwards for society, like it or not. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Uh, fill up because gas prices are going up again on Wednesday. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The war in Ukraine continues Russia's invasion of, I think we're at about day 68 already. Uh, hard to believe. And now the Pope would like a visit with Vladimir Putin. What does that mean? What is the significance, along with an update on what's going on in that steel factory in Mariupol? Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Good to be with you. Thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Uh, Mariupol and that steel plant, we've seen the horrific pictures. Are people getting out of there alive? Uh, some are. Uh, there are some who are still trapped in there, but it does look as if uh, as if the uh, the Russian forces have got Mariupol down to the last few uh, few pockets of resistance in that city, which is uh, which is discouraging. Uh, at what point? At one point, we were a little optimistic about this as more uh, ammunition came in the back door, so to speak. Obviously, the United States ramping up that again. Uh, how significant is it for this city to fall in the hands of Russia? What does it mean for them? Well, you may recall that uh, Putin initially hoped he'd hoped he'd be able to uh, seize the major population centers in Ukraine. 
When that didn't work, he redeployed his forces to some extent and concentrated in the Donbass region, where most of Ukraine's industrial capacity is located. Mariupol is a key part of the Donbass region, and if it falls, uh, Ukraine would lose a, an important port, and Russia would have a land corridor to the Crimean Peninsula, which it already controls, which it, which it seized in 2014. And troops would be available to uh, to fight elsewhere in the uh, in the Donbass region. There is uh, some speculation that uh, that having been uh, rebuffed in the in the west of Ukraine, Putin will redouble his efforts in the east and try to carve out a sort of pseudo autonomous region in the Donbass region and uh, declare victory and go home. I'm not sure if he's that uh, if he's that reasonable. And I suspect that even if he were to do so, such a settlement would prove highly unstable. We've heard that uh, for a while now, the Pope has been trying to arrange a meeting with Putin. What is the significance of that? Uh, very little. I don't. I don't think the Pope has any particular uh, entree in the in the Kremlin. I'm not sure he'd have Putin's ear, no matter what he said. I mean, Putin has. Uh, has his priorities, and uh, I don't think anything the Pope says would uh, would dissuade him. Uh, Russian religious leaders have said hey, this is uh, about politics; it's not about religion. Uh, does mm-hmm. that fly? Does that does that does that solve things? Although it doesn't seem to be a problem anyway. Well, in uh, in in Russia, it's the uh, the Orthodox Church that's uh, that's uh, politically consequential, and it has largely been uh, backing. Uh, uh, what Putin does, quite uh, quite shamefully. So I'm not sure that the uh, the religious developments are are going to cause him any concern. Boris Johnson was speaking today and 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 actually said the comment uh, the Ukraine will win. Um, do you think that's the case? And and all and also spoke out about how he regrets the world's reaction when Crimea was taking over uh, was taken over. What do, what what are your thoughts on on what he said today and the significance of that? Well, he's absolutely right to bemoan our lack of resolve when Crimea was taken in 2014. I think that just emboldened Putin in the uh, in the long run and. Uh, the the, the uh, weaponry that is flowing in the Western weaponry that's flowing into Ukraine will make a difference in the uh, in the long run. Uh, increasingly, this is going to be a war of long range artillery and all the howitzers and uh, and anti tank missiles and drones that are being uh, funneled in there will uh, will help. But uh, it takes time for them to be integrated into Ukraine's forces. Uh, the Ukrainian troops have to be instructed in their use. There are Americans, and I'm glad to see Canadians over over there instructing them in the use of these weapons. So uh, we'll see. Uh, you were saying that obviously uh, Putin can't win the whole country going after the eastern region. We've talked about that for quite a while now. Uh, yeah. Is that is that a win for Putin, especially if it ends up with other countries ending up joining NATO? I mean, giving up or, or getting half of or a small portion of the eastern Ukraine, is that worth all the cost, the collateral damage of all of this? Well, it's not worth having uh, Ukraine uh, firmly in the uh, the western camp having uh, other countries accede to NATO. It's, uh, it's not worth having a powerful enemy on his, uh, on his border and having a peace that, uh, that I suspect would, would, be, would be unstable. A Ukraine that is pro-Western, anti-Russian, 
but also uh, economically constrained and vulnerable to Russian pressure would be a real temptation for Putin to renew the conflict at a moment of his choosing. Many asked so, why, which is why I doubt such a such a peace settlement would be stable. Many asked why Ukraine wasn't didn't join or hasn't been become a part of NATO, and many said because it was sort of a buffer zone there between uh, Russia and the West and such. Is that buffer zone gone now? Uh, well, put, well, uh, it may be in Putin's eyes. He sees uh, he sees Ukraine as part of the Western camp, the Western camp that he deplores and uh, and to which he attributes all sorts of malign things, such as. But again, that that enemy is now on his border. There is no. Buffer. It is now on his border, and and that raises the question of of whether this was really a colossal miscalculation on Putin's part. If he's not able to uh, take over all of Ukraine, and that's looking increasingly doubtful then uh, taking a part of it will prove to be a Pyrrhic victory. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Take care. As you've no doubt heard through the news and such, uh, protests have erupted in the United States following leaked information that indicates the nation's Supreme Court intends to do away with Roe versus Wade, a Roe versus Wade ruling which grants constitutional protection for the liberty to choose to have an abortion. And as, as we've found out a little earlier on when we talked to uh, our White House reporter or a White House reporter that was uh, saying that this is the decision that's sitting on the sidelines and when the next case comes in or comes before the Supreme Court, that that's when the ruling uh, could be heard if uh, this movement continues and, and this is going in the direction that it seems to be. Uh, what does it mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for us here in Canada? Joanna Erdman is with us, Associate Professor at the McBain Chair in Health Law and Policy at the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie and is with us now. Joanna, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks very much for, uh, yeah, for the invitation to join you. What's your thoughts when you first hear this? I mean, we heard rumblings of this, but I think people are still a little surprised to think that it's got this far. Uh, do you think this is a done deal, or do you think there's going to be so much backlash that, uh, that this position will change? Well, first, I think it's nothing short of devastating. Uh, it's devastating even as a draft opinion uh, because of, of really what it tells people uh, in terms of their potential future risks in accessing critical health care, health care that's fundamental to their lives and their future. But, you know, even as a draft opinion, uh, there's something devastating in the profound disrespect that justices show for people who need and have abortion. Uh, and really, the, the gut-wrenching experience of abortion in America for so many people who are trying to care for themselves and their families in economically hard times and socially violent times. And again, they just experienced neglect, being ignored in this judgment. I think it really, again, it just shows the court caring so little about people. Where is this going in the U.S.? Where can this go? What do you anticipate happening here? I do hope uh, that there is some response. Uh, because of the protest activity and the protest activity being people caring about their futures and their lives uh, and the futures and lives of their loved ones. Uh, and indeed showing that abortion rights are something that is not simply written in the text of a legal document. 
it is something lived and experienced, something people care about, and something people are willing to fight for. Uh, and so I do hope that whatever direction the court was moving in um, for this moment, uh, that there is at least some, some reflection uh, because of the reaction of people that shows this is something more, more than just law. It's really about lives. Uh, we're already seeing Canadians asking questions about this. We're, we're seeing it being used politically already, threatening that, see, this is what will happen if we elect certain people. What are your thoughts on Canada's position on this? And could this happen here? Mm-hmm. I woke up to the very same social media storm. So many people writing and asking, could it happen here? What's next? How safe are our rights? And quite truthfully, my opinion on this is that our rights are strong. We have strong constitutional protection for our rights. Our law looks very different from the United States. And I think we need to take some security in that. In 1988, uh, you'll know that our Supreme Court struck down the criminal uh, laws on abortion in this country. And unlike their American counterparts, they didn't offer any playbook for how to regulate abortion in the future. They didn't offer a set of rules uh, for the legislature to start to play with as they do play with people's lives. Uh, And as a consequence of that, I think the political scene in Canada changed immensely. We are one of few countries worldwide that has no law on abortion. This includes no criminal law on abortion. And what's happened in this country is a real testament to the role of law in securing abortion rights. The fact is that, you know, access has continued to increase year after year, decade after decade. I think the most recent example is a good one uh, to lay our heads on, which is The fact that when medical abortion uh, came to this country, that is abortion with access through pills, every country, uh, every government in this country stepped up to support access. And I think they did it because it was just an unquestioned uh, guarantee in this country access to abortion. In Prince Edward Island, where we had the most recent constitutional challenge uh, the government walked away from litigation. It was simply untenable to try and maintain restrictions on abortion. And now in that province, uh, there are some of the strongest health care services in support of people accessing abortion care. So again, I think we have to have a moment of reflection. This country is different. Our abortion rights are strong, uh, and I think they will continue to be strong in the future. And the situation here, and as you've outlined with these decisions that have been made in Canada in the past, this is, it's not the similar, similar situation as, as it is in the United States where a Supreme Court, uh, a body of judges can change that and depending on their political stripe. No, I think that this right has now been captured by Canadian people. It's mm-hmm. been captured, uh, by Canadian politicians. It's really part of the fabric of our constitutional life, not just our constitutional text. And so that is a fundamental difference uh, between the two countries. I think, indeed, uh, the Supreme Court would have a very hard time in this country denying rights that people hold uh, as something so fundamental they need not be written down in the text of the Constitution. So for you, this is, and I don't, let me put words in your mouth here, this is a time to celebrate and acknowledge how far Canada has come and the fact that we're not like our southern neighbors here. 
I think extraordinary gratitude, extraordinary gratitude uh, for what our Supreme Court did back in 1988. And especially here, I want to note the judgment of uh, Justice Wilson, uh, who in her judgment, uh, she wrote and she cited uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, which was very much the constitutional judgment to follow at that time. But what was so significant uh, about her judgment, and I hope you don't mind that I go into a little bit of law uh, in this discussion, was uh, the fact that right now what's happening with the draft U.S. Uh, judgment to the, con- the, the opinion that was released, the court says in that case that there's just no fundamental right to abortion because a fundamental right must be deeply rooted in American history and tradition. And what was so significant about Justice Wilson's opinion in the Morgenthaler judgment is that she did exactly that. She showed the way in which the abortion right is fundamental, fundamental to any sense of democratic constitutionalism. It is as fundamental as our right uh, to choose our own religion and philosophy of life, to choose who we'll associate with, how we'll express ourselves where we'll live, what occupation we'll pursue. That was in her text of that judgment. And so she writes, if we have freedom over all of those decisions, how can we not have freedom over this most fundamental decision of whether or not to continue a pregnancy? Uh, And so for me, her judgment is so very different than the judgment of Roe and Mm. very different than the draft opinion that was released Wilson did not return the abortion issue to the state. She returned the abortion issue to people as their fundamental right, the people who have and want abortions, and we trust in them, I think, as we can continue to trust in our Constitution. Joanna Erdman with us, Associate Professor, McBain Chair in Health Law and Policy at the Schulich School of Law, Dalhousie University. Joanna, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. Uh, not here. Different system, I guess. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing okay. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. You know, I'm just amazed how uh, not only watching the visitation for Guy Lafleur over the last little while, but also uh, watching the funeral, which went on forever. And I can't believe the coverage of it that uh, that we saw today on on TV. Your thoughts about this? This is beyond hockey. This is explain the religion here. How no, this there's, team there's... is means so much to this to this province. Yeah, I mean, there's been sort of three of them in the past number of generations, which was Rocket Richard, and there was Jean Beliveau, and there's Guy Lafleur. And, and to a, a very, very, very minor degree, although not in the same category, you might put Patrick Roy, but I'm not really sure. Um, and the reason I don't put him necessarily there is the three guys who I mentioned before were not just Francophones and not just Quebecers. But they played for the Canadians, obviously. They were the star on the team. But also then they became the the face almost while they were playing and then afterwards in retirement. They became sort of the face of the province that, uh, uh, you know, there are other things, obviously, that you can do in Quebec. I mean, <laughs> hockey is not the only thing. But I'm not sure about that. But it's among the most well, you can eat poutine. Uh, yeah. But it's and but it's among the most visible things for sure. 
And so there are very, there are not many celebrities, Celine Dion, uh, I suppose there's others, but there's not many celebrities that have the, just the, 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 the presence and the platform that they had. And all three of those guys um, were kind of perfect for the role at the time that they were in that role. And, you know, it, it, we, we talked about this on my show the day I think that he died or the day after he died. I don't know when you're going to see that again. Because it, you you have to have all those things come together. You have to have the Frank the Quebec born francophone player who plays for the Canadians, who stars for the Canadians, who leads them to Stanley Cups, who sticks around, who uh, generally, for the most part, Guy Lafleur had some moments, but who generally avoids missteps and is someone that you know the whole province can sort of say is the. The person they rally around, the, the almost the mascot, which is a horrible way to describe it probably, but the, the person who's out there representing them. And, and I don't know when we're going to see that again. So, are, are, so Is the team, because many have said the team isn't as much unless it has that. They need that type of player on the team. Well, we haven't seen the Montreal Canadiens win a Stanley Cup without a player like that on the team, because the last mm-hmm. one was Patrick Waugh. And so... That's a it's a like good thing to say, I suppose. We'll see. I mean, would would the folks in Montreal be less excited about winning a cup if they didn't have a French Canadian star? Mm, I'm not sure about that. But but would you would the captain of that team, let's say he was from Sweden or from Ontario or from the States or wherever, would he be as revered long term? I very, very much doubt that unless there was some unbelievable circumstance or situation that went along with it that I can't even imagine what it is. Those, those homegrown guys. And, and what makes this so unusual, Scott, is I'm not sure that uh, that exists almost anywhere else. I mean, look, mm. we've, we're one game into the playoffs. Let's not get too excited about the Leafs, although they looked pretty darn good last night. Yeah. But if the Leafs win the Stanley Cup this year and John Tavares is the guy to lift it, John Tavares will be held in regard yeah. forever, because he ended a 55-year drought for the Maple Leafs. But is he seen as the face of English-speaking Canada? No, I wouldn't say so. He's, he's a guy who helped the team win a cup and is really popular because of that. But I don't think that in 50 years, when John Tavares is having his funeral or whatever, I, I don't think we're seeing this. This is unique. You know, I wasn't going to me- mention the Leafs' success last night because it was a break about Montreal and Guy Lafleur, but... You're a sports guy, and you did that, so it must be okay. So I feel better about that. Well, you know, it's only one game. Uh, Tampa could come back and win the next four, and so this may be the thing we cling to if you're uh, if you're a Leaf fan. <laughs> but uh, you know, heaven knows, it's been a lot of years since there's been anything to cling to. So I guess you take your small mercies when they come, right? Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show and columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. Coming up after the six o'clock news, Scott. As always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave. As always, we leave it to you, and in this case, Tony, for the last word. Scott, on the subject of abortions, it used to be that in the church that the only time you had sex was to uh, get pregnant and have a child. In today's society, sex is needed 
to keep the body healthy to prevent some dysfunctions in the body, and it also creates an intimacy between the couple and keeps the family system uh, together by being intimate with each other. It keeps the health of the family together. Thank you. All right. Let's go do that. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.